deals to say went all over the country. Everyone panicked except for movie studios who went, hey, you're super talented. We would like to sign you to things. Orson Welles was like, no, I'm too good for you. And that Orson Welles impression was top 10. It was in a tier. Thank <laughs> the, you. Top. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of Plot Devices. We've made it to episode 13, and we're fourth wall break. We're recording this on November 12th, so we're only one day away from making this a 13-13 situation. I don't know what that means. I don't study astrology. I don't know what any of it means. My name is Brandon King. I'm one of your co-hosts for today, alongside Samantha and Corvaya. Sam, how are you on this fine day? I am good, and I'm also just as clueless about astrology and everything ethereal, so I am glad that we are recording on the 12th, and I'm very overwhelmed with all the Disney Plus news, so very excited about um, to talk about that with you. We have all of that ready and lined up, ready to go. Uh, unfortunately, Noah Guzman is not joining us today. He has better things going on in his life, and of course, we are incredibly supportive of him, and we will catch him next week. We do have a special guest coming to you guys uh, later in the show, so just stay tuned for that, but for right now, we are going to hop into our main directive for today, which we basically said... Screw the news. Disney Plus Day is happening again, and we should probably talk about it because we didn't know how much there was. And then a lot of things dropped and then very little dropped, and we were all very confused. What we're going to do is we're going to go by this block by block. So we're going to do the uh, Disney main proper block. That's all the animation, live action stuff. We're going to talk about Pixar stuff. We're going to get into the Marvel stuff. We're going to touch on the Star Wars stuff later on uh, in quick hits. There just wasn't a lot of it. We are going to get started with our uh, with our main Disney block. That is probably the bulk of where the most content came from. Um, among the things that we got, we got uh, a new clip for the upcoming Beatles documentary, The Beatles Get Back, which I cannot wait for. We got the first trailer for the Proud Family sequel. We got the confirmation on High School Musical Season 3. Bunch of bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to run down at all. I'm going to toss it over to Sam first and see what the heck of all of this list are you most excited for and Overall, what was your impression of the Disney Plus kind of lineup for a change? It's kind of funny. You already referenced to it earlier that it was a ton of news and then suddenly it wasn't a ton of news. So I feel like overall with Disney Plus Day, we got like a lot of concept art for things, some of which we already knew were happening, some of which we didn't. Either way, lots of up and ups and downs in this roller coaster here. But I, overall, I'm really excited about quite a bit of this news. So like, for example, the Baymax series, I think that looks adorable. And I, I think that Big Hero 6 didn't get enough love. And it was really, it's, it's like a really underrated movie. And so I'm just happy to see Baymax again in some capacity. And something else that I was kind of surprised with was like Zootopia Plus. I personally, I don't know how I feel about series on Disney Plus having like that plus with the name of the series. I, I don't know. I don't know if I like that branding, but Either way, that could be interesting, too, because I really like Zootopia's world. So there are a ton and ton of things in here. And um, I also think one of the biggest announcements is the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie, um, knowing that Andy Samberg and John Mulaney are you know, going to be voicing them. And this was kind of already in the works. People already were aware of it, but it's just nice to see more on it, that it's actually happening. And we now know it's releasing spring 2022. Um, so personally, I never saw Rescue Rangers. I know I'm a bad 90s kid, but I, I actually never saw it. And so so I, I need to really brush up on, on my pop culture there and watch some of the episodes. But Brandon, what were you really excited about in Disney? Someone described this on Twitter as like, if last year was, you know, the Disney Plus, you know, proper album, this was the Disney Plus B-sides. Like it was all the stuff that we should have gotten last year at the at the big Disney Plus at the end of December and just never got, whether it was production delays or whatever. 
One of the things that I didn't know was that Chip and Dale thing. I thought that was a series, but the fact that they're putting it in just a movie format, I love the casting of Sandberg and Mulaney. I think they're going to do a fantastic job with this. I've also, you know, been handily catching up on DuckTales the last couple of months and knowing that there's a chance it might tie into that universe makes me a little bit nerdy about it. See, I, I love DuckTales. That I'm caught up on. DuckTales was my thing. <laughs> the new one or the, the classic one? The classic one. Okay, I'm talking about the reboots. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah, the classic one is the one that I adored so instead of watching rescue rangers i watched DuckTales. <laughs> I, I will i do love the original but i will simply say give the new one a shot it's brilliant a couple of like weird standouts for me the dive movie kids sequel movie's not even out yet we don't know if it's going to be good but they're already confirming a sequel i guess the animation is cheap enough to do a sequel cool um proud family sequel i cannot wait for i love that show as a kid i know so many of my friends are completely ecstatic about this the trailer looks just like the original but more sleek and you know kind of refined 2d animation that disney has been doing can't wait for it. Um, I don't watch High School Musical, the series, so I don't care about that. Uh, but the two big standouts to me were the Willow first look behind the scenes. Uh, I just recently watched Willow for the first time about a month and a half ago. Really like it. I'm, I'm really happy to see what this can do. And Warwick Davis is just hilarious. I love him. Like, he can He's make... He's a joy. He really is. And he is clearly having a lot of fun behind the scenes with the cast. And Eric Kellyman from Falcon and Winter Soldier is going to pop up in there. So keeping it all in kind of the Marvel Disney family sort of. But I'm also with you. Like, the weird standout of this was the Baymax trailer. It looks delightful. And this is coming as someone who watched the Big Hero 6 series. It's fine. This, I think, is going to be kind of a proper sequel to what the movie was, which was really charming, really intimate, where that movie can really succeed. And it's probably, aside from, again, one that we're going to talk about a little later on, I think it's the Disney Plus show that I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah. And, and, you know, if anything with Disney plus, if, if they showed us anything, it's that they are willing to revive um, some of their older properties for a modern audience. And, and personally, that makes me really excited at the prospect of meet the Robinsons coming back because I absolutely loved meet the Robinsons. And that's just kind of on my Disney wish list. If anybody from Disney's listening to this, that is on my wish list. If they did like some kind of like mini series or something on Disney plus, I would absolutely love that um so yeah with baymax i mean i, I agree with you i think that's going to be a proper sequel so that should be really exciting like you know series sequel if you will um so yeah i'm really looking forward to that so much to be excited about <laughs> it's interesting because of all the films they seem to be touching the sort of like late 90s to early 2000s run that that is included in they don't seem to want to touch yet but i have a feeling in like the next five maybe even less years we're gonna start getting that wave of you know oh maybe like a chicken little spinoff like there's gonna be that kind of nostalgia for it when we start um, running out of ideas, <laughs> but depending you know, on who you ask, we already have. <laughs> dang. Um, and just another quick gripe too with Dizzy Plus Day. I do really wish that they kept the live stream format just because right? I think this would have been so much more exciting as a live stream rather than just, oh, here it's on Disney Plus, check it out. Oh, you have to be a subscriber to watch it. Cool. Um, like, I think it would just be cool and open it to more audiences if they had it as a live stream and that just creates excitement and you're like oh my goodness is it's happening i mean that's why i love watching nintendo directs or playstation showcases and and things like video game related and dc fandom i mean it had its flaws but that was a really fun show to watch yeah it's like why did last year succeed because they made it an event and they made it consistent for people to watch instead of you know locking it behind either a twitter thread or putting like the teasers behind a paywall on disney plus which i think is a monumentally stupid idea right so Otherwise, had lots of fun today. <laughs> yes, and that's, again, not all. We have, you know, two other branches to get to if you want to count that. Well, we're going to talk quickly about the Pixar thing. Uh, there was mainly just a few significant announcements for that. We got some concept art for the Tiana series, the sequel to Prince and the Frog. That is going to be dropping in 2023. 
Hi, Feature Brandon here editing the episode. I'm sure at least one of you has caught on to the mess up here. Uh, Princess and the Frog is not a Pixar movie. It's a Disney animation movie. We wrote the notes when we retired. We didn't catch it. We got caught up in the moment. And there is no way for me to edit it out without it sounding really, really out of place. So for all intents and purposes, Princess and the Frog is a Pixar movie today. There wasn't a lot of Pixar content for Disney Plus anyways. It you know allows us to pad out the time a bit more. Just wanted to point that out. Okay, bye. Also announced after that is uh, Stella Meggie. She did the photograph from 2020, which I loved. She's going to be showrunning and directing the show as well. Cars on the Road, the Cars sequel series that has been rumored for a long time. That's going to be dropping. Again, Owen Wilson, Larry the Cable Guy are going to be back. That's going to be back uh, next year on Disney+. Plus. And I think most significantly that I want to get to, Win or Lose, which is a new Pixar original series that is set to premiere uh, next year as well. No further information on that, just that Pixar is moving more into you know serialized show formats. Sam, I want to go over to you. There Again, there wasn't much on the Pixar side, but what stood out to you? Yeah, for me, it was absolutely uh, Tiana. I, it's just because I really like Princess and the Frog. Uh, again, another criminally underrated movie. Um, and so I'm just really excited to see some kind of series because it's a series, right? If I'm yes. not mistaken. Yeah. And so I'm just really excited to see more in her story, especially because now that she's a princess that's going to follow her adventures. That's That's really cool. So that's the one that stood out to me. And I just think it's kind of funny that we're seeing some more Cars content because Cars, I feel like you could always see more of it. And I don't know if it's because they're an easy cash cow. It's easy to do merchandise and everything. I I don't know. I was kind of surprised to see more on Cars content. But then Win or Lose, that's also really exciting. The fact that it's like a new original series that that's just really exciting and it looks like it's baseball related based off of the the poster or the art that i saw so um we'll see i love baseball and you know this this could be a really good time so how about for you i will say win or lose is the one that fascinates me the most because between you know kind of the popcorn shorts we've been getting you know doug's big adventure and all that and between also monsters at work as well I find it interesting that Pixar is also starting to go the series routes. Like I find that's why Cars on the Road fascinates me so much too, is that, okay, let's take a movie that, you know, for better or worse, you know, better with Monsters Inc., worse with Cars, in my opinion, has its fan base. And let's try and, you know, expand that into more of like a serialized structure. Let's bring the cast back. Let's do what we do. And I'm kind of fascinated by that, especially with original concepts. Like I, like, I don't think we've ever seen an original Pixar series. And I'm curious to see what that can lend itself storytelling wise to do. But the biggest one is Tiana. I love Princess and the Frog so much. I couldn't wait to, but when, when we heard last year they were doing a Tiana series, I was like, yes, do that. There's so many more great adventures you can have. Tiana is such a fascinating character, especially now with the royalty aspect added into it. The only problem is that we have to wait another year for it. And I think that Tiana is going to get like the well-deserved love that she's needed for such a long time because, I mean, they're even revamping Splash Mountain in Disney parks for this. So it's just, oh, I are. think specifically in, yeah, I think specifically in Disneyland, if I'm not mistaken. I just feel like she's getting a lot of love that was really missed out on when she first premiered. So this is this is really cool. I'm excited. Interestingly, we got four Disney Pixar Plus shows announced last year. We got Zootopia, which you mentioned in our pre-production meeting. We have Tiana, and then we also have Baymax. But you know what we didn't hear? Moana. Oh, shoot. That's There's a the good Moana There is a Moana series. That That was a really good observation, and I feel bad that I even forgot about it. No, I did too until I was going back through like last year's live stream notes and I was like, oh yeah, where I wanted the Moana series. Maybe they don't have the story fully fleshed out yet. It must be a case of like, there must have been pandemic delays. Maybe they don't have a writer on board, but I hope they get an announcement for that soon. Yeah, because uh, as we know, pandemics collapsed everything onto itself. So yeah. Totally. Uh, let's move on to our final block of content, the Marvel announcements. And there was some significant things this year. Again, not a ton, but enough to talk about. 
Uh, for those of you who didn't watch uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings yet, uh, it is available now on Disney+, Plus, uh, as well as the Marvel Assembled special, which is the whole behind-the-scenes thing. Side note, if you're not watching the Marvel Assembled versions, you should. They're amazing documentaries. I love them all. Um, also announced, we got confirmation on the Agatha Harkness show, which is now Agatha House of Harkness, as well as an animated Marvel Zombies movie, which I'm sure Noah somewhere is screaming about. Uh, but most importantly were, I think, a couple of big announcements. We got uh, some initial footage for our first footage, I should say, for Moon Knight, She-Hulk, and this Marvel series, all of which I believe are next year, although I think Moon Knight got delayed to 2023, correct me if I'm wrong, as well as two pretty significant series in development. Uh, Spider-Man Freshman Year, which is an animated Spider-Man movie that, as far as I know, is not connected to the MCU yet, but it very well could be. I've heard people speculate that it's, you know, the Tom Holland prequel series about, you know, Uncle Ben and everything. Hi, thought you heard the last of me. Well, this is what happens when we do the show after a lot of announcements. According to Marvel.com, Spider-Man freshman year will be telling the origins of the MCU Peter Parker. So it is Tom Holland's incarnation. It's not separate. It is MCU canon, but we don't know if Tom Holland will be back. Uh, I had heard those things right. I just wanted to confirm for you guys as well if you were curious. Okay, bye. But most importantly, X-Men 97, which is set to be, quote, new episodes of the X-Men animated series from the 90s, which is set for release in 2023. I want to dive into that, but Sam, I want to go to you. Of all this stuff, and you saw the special on Disney Plus as well, what stood out to you? Yeah, so much. So I, I believe you're correct about the Moon Knight thing, by the way, if you if you just wanted to fact check on that, but someone I should do. triple fact check us. So um, <laughs> the, uh, I, the thing that stood out to me the most was the X-Men 97 thing. I mean, for me, that came way out of left field. I never would have imagined that we were going to be talking about this. And funny enough with um, X-Men, like, when I was younger, I would watch the series, but I didn't know much about superheroes back then. And so when I would watch it, I, I didn't realize it was X-Men until years later. Like when I'm a teenager, I realized, oh, that was X-Men. And that was a big part of my childhood when I really think about it. So super excited to see more of that, especially like new episodes. Like, oh my goodness. And I know a lot of people are freaking out about that too. Um, so that's the one I'm most excited about. How about you? I, I do want to mention real quick, because we didn't bring it up in this, there was an exclusive lip for Hawkeye, which we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. It looks so good. It does look so good. I'm very excited for that series. <laughs> it looks like it's a cool, witty, like, I don't know if buddy cop's the right word for a it. A little but bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just really excited for, for them. That'll be really cool. And again, I keep, you know, phrasing this every time we talk about Hawkeye. It's ripped right out of the Matt Fraction David Aja run, which if you have not read the Matt Fraction David Aja run, go read it. It's so good. And it's basically this. Um, and again, the clip looks well-directed and everything. That turning camera shot, like I can't get enough of. Right. As is. Um, what am I excited about? Well, I'm excited that people can, you know, go see Shang-Chi if they haven't seen it in theaters. If you can watch it now, please. It's fantastic. We all raved about it. Go send a review. It's really good. And I should also say the She-Hulk footage surprised me. Because for the longest time, I haven't known what direction they'd be going with She-Hulk. I didn't know if they'd be going like the classic John Byrne, fourth wall breaking kind of thing, or more of like the recent kind of more serious Gamma Family type stuff. It looks to be much more to the origins, like much more of kind of, you know, Bruce Banner is kind of like the reluctant mentor. And, you know, Jennifer is just kind of wanting to live a normal life. But, oh, no, Gamma nothingness ensues. So we'll see what happens with that. But the biggest story to me is the X-Men stuff. I should put this right out there. I'm a diehard X-Men fan. I never watched the animated series. I know. Oh, it, you need to watch it. Oh, that I'm excited for you now. This will be I, a fun adventure. I've heard it's amazing. <laughs> I, it was just slightly before my time, and I was like a Wolverine the X-Men fan. I was an X-Men Evolution fan, but that was like slightly before my time. But beyond the fact that I'm so happy for the fans who have loved this and cherished this for 20 years, 
It also goes to the question that we've been asking in the nerd space for a long time, which is, okay, when the heck are X-Men going to be in the MCU? Well, it's not the MCU, but Disney is doing something with X-Men as early as two years from now. And I think it's a pretty good sign that, you know, as early as, you know, spring 2023, we could start to get hints or actual or maybe even definitive characters from the X-Men in the MCU. So I think that's a really interesting warning sign. And the fact that we're getting this with the original team behind it, I think it's just great for fans. I'm glad you mentioned She-Hulk as well, because I wasn't that excited about it. I kind of felt indifferent about She-Hulk. I, I don't know much about the superhero, but then I saw that teaser or like that first footage and I was intrigued. I'm like, oh, this character seems super interesting. How it to be like this much of a badass and a lawyer. I'm like, okay, I'm down for this. <laughs> you know, like uh, this, this seems like a really cool series. So yeah, that one surprised me. And now I'm more excited about that. And same with Miss Marvel too. Uh, and so there are so many other announcements that popped up too, which I personally know very little about, like Echo and Ironheart and the I Am Groot series too. So it's like, oh gosh, there's so much. But at the same time, I wish we knew so much more so that we could talk about it, you know? I will fully admit, I wish they had done full trailers, especially for Miss Marvel, because I know that they're almost done shooting that. So they probably could have. But again, you know, it is what it is. I also know that uh, literally right before we did this, there was news that Doctor Strange 2 was doing reshoots. It's probably why we didn't get a teaser for that. So I thought that was interesting to point out. All right, that does it for our new segment today. Let's get into our quick hit segment, which will not evade Disney Plus news. Uh, Sam, do you mind going first or do you want me to go first? Yeah, I'll go ahead and go first. So right, then, let's see. It's going to be a couple, fam. All right. So three, two, one. I just wanted to talk about the fact that I'm super excited about one Disney Plus show. Actually, I'm going to bring it up that I forgot to mention, Pinocchio. I'm actually really excited about Pinocchio. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. And the fact that we have Tom Hanks and Cynthia Erivo attached to it. Super excited. Same with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and so many other people. But I'm really excited for that. We'll see what happens with the live action because Pinocchio's made, been made multiple times over. Um, but then my actual quick hit before the Plus stuff was uh, Paul Rudd, named Sexiest Man Alive with People magazine. Super excited for him. Congratulations. As Ryan Reynolds said on, I think it was Jimmy Fallon's show, uh, he has made a deal with Satan and has aged backwards. So that man deserves everything that he could possibly get and all the nods for Sexiest Man Alive. And time. I will say, as far as Pinocchio goes, I'm slightly looking more forward to Guillermo del Toro's weird and nutty take on Netflix, but I'll admit this one has my attention. See, that's the problem, though, is like Pinocchio has been made so many times over that it's like, how many times can you do that? So it color me, it color me intrigued. Okay. And Tom Hanks can do no wrong. I, we know that. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. On to mine. And I also am going to try and squeeze them, too. In three, two. So, of course, the big thing that we didn't talk about the Disney Plus news, Star Wars. Where was it all? Rogue Squadron got delayed, which we didn't talk about this week. There was a bunch of news with the comics got delayed. Seemingly, Lucasfilm just went radio silent, except for one pretty substantial thing, kind of. We got the first teaser for the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Uh, it's mainly just Ewan McGregor talking about the series, Deborah Chow, the director who also worked on The Mandalorian, talking about the series, and a bunch of really cool pieces of concept art. There's a piece that looks like it's the Inquisitor from the Battlefront games. I cannot wait to see if that's a thing. We get the shot of, you know, Vader and Obi-Wan in the lava again. I don't know if that's, you know, going to be a flashback or a new thing, but again, Hayden Christensen is coming back as Darth Vader. We can only assume that there will be some giant confrontation at the end. Why we didn't get a trailer, I'm not sure at all, but I really, really am just excited to get more, and I can't wait to dive into every frame of this. While I got 15 seconds left, I should mention this real quick. Uh, the Foo Fighters are making a Haunted House movie. Uh, Collider confirmed that apparently they're releasing some weird like Haunted House movie about the studio they recorded the last album in next year with the entire band involved. It's very weird. I don't get it, but I'm kind of excited for it. And time. 
That was to the T, right to the second. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I thought the Foo Fighters thing was super interesting because I don't know much about the band, but it's like Foo Fighters star and produce that haunted house film. What? Like, it's so unique. The news is so different. <laughs> well, like, to be fair, Dave Grohl has been expanding into directing, but he's been doing documentaries. So the idea of the band acting is very weird to me. Right. This could either go terribly wrong or very, very good. <laughs> so time will tell. Honestly, I, I know it's already been a thing. I kind of wish they just did Muppets, Muppets Haunted Mansion, but with the Foo Fighters as the human characters. That would have been fun. Imagine. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> and that'll be it for our quick hits. Great job to the two of us. And so we are going to move on to our next segment for the movies. So I will um, leave it to Brandon to kick it off with Belfast, since he's the one who reviewed it for ASU Odyssey Online. Take it away, Brandon. Yeah, so this is Belfast. It's the newest project from Kenneth Branagh. Maybe, as he's described it, the most autobiographical and personal film that he's done for the state. You probably know him from his Shakespearean adaptations with uh, Henry V and Thor, and uh, and also with Murder on the Express. Death on the Nile is coming some point. We're not going to talk about that today. Uh, but Belfast is absolutely what we're talking about. Tubs. We follow uh, a young kid named Buddy, played by a newcomer, Jude Hill, who I believe this is his first major acting gig. Uh, and he plays essentially kind of a copy-paste of Kenneth Branagh at that age. Kenneth Branagh was raised uh, in Belfast, Ireland in the late 1960s during a period known as the Troubles, when there was a lot of uh, conflict brewing between uh, Catholic and Protestant residents. The Irish government and the British government were totally at odds with one another. Look it up. I, I can't explain all the nuances in here, but needless to say, there was a lot of like uh, a lot of street warfare, a lot of gang violence that was happening. And Buddy, as this character, as this pastiche of Kenneth Branagh, is kind of caught up in the middle of all this. He is being raised by his parents, uh, his dad, played by Jamie Dornan, and his mom, played by uh, Katrina Balfi, uh, and his grandparents as well, uh, played by Kieran Hines and uh, Judy. One day, one of the Catholic local gang leaders, played by Colin Morgan, is kind of you know going up to Jamie Dornan's character and implying that there's going to be some heavy violence there. Jamie Jordan's character is often out of town. He's in London uh, working across the pond, as they say. And he's kind of having to reconcile with the idea of, do I have to move my family out of Belfast? Is this going to be unsafe for my family? Whereas Buddy is, you know, beloved by the entire town. He knows everyone there. He is forging this relationship with the young classmate named Catherine, uh, played by Olivia Tennant. And essentially, it's this kind of dueling storyline of the parents, the grandparents kind of deciding what's best for the family. And Buddy and also his younger brother as well, or older brother, I should say kind of, you know, living their lives and trying to make the most of what they have so far. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you first. Uh, what if, what have you thought about Kenneth Blanagh's projects in the past? And knowing how personal this is, is this, as Chris has described, like his best film and his, his best, most personal film? Yeah, in my opinion, I I actually think this is one of my favorite films that he's done. Um, and I think it's just because of how deeply personal it feels. You really put it best where he has a lot of personal experience to this this project. So it's almost to the point where it feels like a passion project. And I, I think that's amazing. And with this family, I I was actually surprised that the story primarily followed this family. I don't really know what I was expecting from Belfast, but just from the trailer, it's like, yes, you have this one family, but I thought it was going to always, always, always talk about that tumultuous time between the Protestants versus Catholics. And in a way the story does do that, but it's not like any of them are really directly, consistently involved in any of the riots and loots, uh, looting scenes. I mean, there are moments when it's kind of part of the story, but it's not the central focus because the real central focus here is this family and just 
you know, what, what's best for you and, and to not forget where you come from in your life. Like it just, there were, there were a lot of family meanings and messages from this movie that I absolutely adored. So for me, that's why I really like this project. And I could absolutely see like all of the Oscar potential here too. I mean, we even mentioned with Catriona Balf, like amazing. She's phenomenal in it. And same with Jamie Dornan. I think they're amazing as the parents in this and uh, jude hill honestly really gets like a really good um standing ovation in my opinion because you're right this is his like first feature film movie because otherwise he was in a short before this so i I think that he's a really great standout young actor from this year's oscars picks and um yeah i just i just think this was a really good movie so how about you brandon what do you think uh this is probably one of my favorite movies of the year (gasps) this is delightful i think Everything, the issues that I have with it have nothing to do with the fact that what Kenneth Branagh is doing here is so personal on the page and translates so well to the screen. I think that idea of, you know, youthful innocence and vibrancy, but also, you know, not understanding the scale of what's going on to you, but also the stuff with the parents of, you know, let's dive into the nuances of all, like, let's tell our kids what's actually going down with everything, but unraveling it all in this incredible family dynamic. I think all of it works beyond the, you know, the romanticization, maybe the lack of nuance. Like I, I'll fully admit, I watched some videos and read up stuff on the troubles because I was woefully ignorant of it. Uh, I still don't totally know all the context about it, but I think the film does a fair job at acknowledging just, you know, the kind of deep seated tensions of like, and even his family isn't quite aware of it, of just like, no, this is just how things have been. And sometimes these things happen and we have to deal with them. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, Again, I don't think it deals with nuance quite well, but I think it does what it needs to do for that. Beyond the fact that, again, it's just so lovely. Like, the dialogue is just so fresh and vibrant. And again, Jude Hill could come off as annoying so quickly. And he does have this kind of, you know, aw shucks kind of attitude about him. Like, he reads... I, I, one of my favorite Easter eggs is that he reads a Thor comic in the movie, which, of course, kind of piranha, so I thought that was a cool touch. But, like, he reads comics. Like, he's a total nerd in school. Like, he gets picked on. But, like, he's also, you know... He has a huge Jessica. crush. <laughs> It's a huge crush and it's really adorable, but like there's that whole thing of like the back of the class kind of thing that is kind of like a subplot in the movie. But then there's also the stuff with the parents that I think is even more affecting, like the dynamic between Jamie Jordan and Kitron Abalfi, both of whom are impeccably good in this. But like Kieran Hines is great and reminded me of my own grandfather as well in a lot of ways. Uh, Judy Dench has maybe the most heartbreaking line of the entire movie that is in the trailer and I don't want to spoil which one it is, um, but they're all tremendous in it. And Again, I think the black and white footage, I think it lends to this idea that we're watching this solely from Buddy and thus Brana's point of view of, you know, so much of it is kind of, you know, so much of it is in shades of gray, but so much of it is kind of shrouded in this shadowy mystery that you'll never quite get. But when it does explode into violence, it does feel visceral. It does feel, you know, unattainable, that kind of thing. So when it works, it's firing on all cylinders. I think there are a couple of things that could have, you know, done a bit better. Maybe tackle the nuance a bit better. Maybe frame it as the parent story a bit more. But for what it is as this incredibly autobiographical crowd pleaser, God, I love this movie. I appreciated so many of the positive things from it, too, because, you know, it could be a very negative movie if you really focused heavily on the tumultuous periods. But it's like it's really positive when you think about this family, because, I mean, you even mentioned it on Twitter, I believe, Brandon, that scene where they're dancing with everlasting love. I, so I good. was so good. grinning from ear to ear when that scene was on the screen. I'm like, oh, this is so sweet. And so it's like there are so many moments in this film where it's like, that is sweet. And like, I love Buddy's interactions with his grandparents. It reminded me very much of my own with my grandparents too. And it makes you miss your grandparents, you know, if they're no longer here, but it's just, it's such a sweet movie, such a sweet 
family centered movie. And I, um, I really appreciate the soundtrack too. Like if we're talking about everlasting love and everything, the soundtrack in the film's really fun too, but, um, that, and then I really appreciated the witty writing as a, a nod to that too. So I, I it, one of my favorite scenes was when he was talking to his grandfather about like his handwriting and it's like, Oh yeah, you could make that into a seven or something. And then that way you have multiple horses in a race. And I thought that was hilarious. Like that, that's one where I really laughed out loud emphatically <laughs> but um yeah there, there were just a lot of nice moments like that in the movie well, where it, it feels like a slice of life yeah or like even the scene where you know he and his parents go to see chitty chitty bang bang and they're you know rolling with the scene yeah. and you clearly get the vibe of like no this isn't you know a brana past this is supposed to be brana and you can also tell from that scene with you know the christmas carol reenactment which is you know spoiler it's one of the few moments of color in the movie and you get that vibe of you know a little kid sitting in a theater and seeing something that you don't quite know what it is, but you know that it's grand and, you know, it's possibly attainable for you as an artist. I was telling uh, my boyfriend, because I went to go see it with him, uh, with uh, C. Belfast, and I mark my words, I think that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang sales are going to go up that or like the DVD <laughs> will be harder to find because, I mean, the music's great. I love Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And so it was just kind of nice to see them get a little shout out in a movie in this modern day and age. So yeah, I feel like people could be like, what's that? And then they're going to find it and all the DVD copies and stuff will be snatched up. But and I know, my words. I know we've talked about the performances a little bit, but I think for me, the standout is Catriona Balfi. I think she has agreed to, completely. I think she has to do so much heavy lifting in this. I, again, everyone does and everyone steps up the task like Judy Dench can do this in her sleep. But I think Catriona Balfi, I have not watched Outlander, so I'm not familiar with her work. I was mainly familiar with her in 4B Ferrari, which she was great in. But this, she mm-hmm. surpasses, I think, everyone else. She has the weight of a mother who is dealing with, you know, having to raise these two boys by herself, by having to deal with all the problems on the street while the dad is out, you know, providing, but is away from the family. And I think that weight just so translated to her as a performer. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, this it's, it's not much of a, a spoiler if I just say supermarket, but the supermarket scene that got me. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah she's phenomenal in that. Like that would be the scene they would use in the Oscars if they, you know, slip a clip with the um, nominees. So yeah, she was, amazing. I think they, I think they would use the trolley scene actually. Cause I think that's more subdued. I could see the trolley scene too. Yeah, that's true. Cause usually when you see the Oscars stuff, it's subdued scenes. Yeah. Good point. True. I feel like for me, it's a pretty solid nine. Cause like you, I, you kind of mentioned it briefly. I wish I learned more about the parents and have followed the parents specifically. But having said that, anything they did with like the grandparents and like his cousin or any of the other childhood friends, it's like, it was really, really nice. So they were very minor things with me. I absolutely love it. Would recommend it to anyone. How about you? Yeah, it's a nine for me as well. Uh, it's it's a total crowd pleaser. Again, it's not the most smart film in the world. It's not going to you know change your mind on you know the geopolitics of you know Ireland and England at the time. And it doesn't quite go as you know visceral or violent as you might want it to go. As you know that that period was so tumultuous and so you know widespread amongst you know religion religion and class violence and everything like that. But for what it is, it will make you smile and grin and feel like you are a part of this. And when you finish, you will want to go back to it. The ensemble cast are tremendous. The cinematography really benefits from black and white. And I think just for me personally, like I reviewed Artemis Fowl last year. It was a train wreck. And so just to see Kenneth Branagh back on his, you know, on his good director shtick, like I've been defending the guy for years. And just to know that he still has this in him, I I was so impressed and so happy to watch this. I, again, if you are able to get out of theater, see it. It is playing in theaters right now. I would. We would both totally recommend it. Brandon, we don't talk about Artemis Fowl in this space, safe space. I do. I had to review it. <laughs> it was bad, okay? 
And so I guess with that, with our ratings out of the way, we'll, we'll move on to the next movie we also have in the dock. It's a little later in our schedule, but like we keep mentioning as tonight's theme, we are only human. So we are going to go into The Harder They Fall, which that I was super excited about. It was one of my most anticipated movies. Um, so Brandon, I, I'll, I'll leave it to you to do like the summary if you'd like. Sure. Uh, Idris Elba's second cowboy movie this year after Conquer Cowboy, which I'm almost certain will make my honorable mention this year because I think it's great. Uh, this is too, spoiler. Uh, this is directed by, uh, James Samuel, who is primarily known for, uh, his music work. I believe this is his directorial debut. I could be wrong. Uh, but it's at least one of his first feature length, uh, projects, at, at least in that regard. Uh, we follow Jonathan Majors, who plays Nat Love. His parents are killed by a gangster named Rufus Buck, who is played by Idris Elba. And he is kind of scarred with this, uh, this Christian cross symbol on his head. 20 something years later, he has formed the Nat Love Gang along with, uh, RJ Kyler and, um, oh, who is the other actor's name? Uh, Edie Gathagy. And they kind of, you know, go on their merry way. They kind of, you know, are a bit of a Robin Hood type gang, so to speak. Uh, he has a past relationship with Zazie Beats, who is a uh, brothel maid who kind of, you know, owns this, you know, kind of, uh, mid 1800s style brothel. Needless to say, we then cut to, uh, Keith Stanfield and Regina King. They are members of Idris Elba's gang who then break him out in this incredible train sequence, uh, this train chase sequence. And they essentially take over this town as a way of, you know, luring Nat there as kind of a final act of revenge against him. We also have Dion Cole, who is the uh, exiled mayor of that town, as well as Danielle Deadweiler and um, Delroy Lindo, who are kind of the law enforcement side of things. Uh, Delroy Lindo pops up as a Bass Reeves, who is a real life uh, Midwestern deputy as well. And that kind of leads to the whole thing, which is that the very first line of the movie that you see is that these people live, but this is a fable. So this is based on real, you know, black and African-American outlaws. And, you know, people like that. But it, it is very much a fictional story as being told by this. Uh, it's written by, again, by James Samuel and his co-writer, Buzz uh, Yakim, playing on Netflix right now. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you first. Uh, what expeditions did you have going into this? And what did you think of The Heart of Fall? now that we're getting to it? Yeah, it exactly fit my expectations, uh, just to quickly cover that question. But I also wanted to throw in uh, some clarification that James Samuel, this is his second movie that he's directed, because yes. the first one he directed was They Die by Dawn, and then he had a short for Jay-Z Legacy, and then this, The Harder They Fall. So Got still, it. he's very early into his directing his directing career, so it's totally, you know, I think it's, this is really strong for an early project. So um this movie did exactly meet my expectations, like, when I saw the trailer, I was like blown away because it felt like a Quentin Tarantino movie, but without being so visceral. It's like, it's more about the aesthetic, something that's a little stylish and a little witty at times and anything's done with flair. And so, yes, there are moments where there are some pretty visceral injuries, but it's not like to the Quentin Tarantino level, in my opinion. But having said that, all the actors in it are really, really phenomenal. And I'm not that familiar with Jonathan Majors, except for recently with Marvel and everything. But, um, you know, it, it, I just think that this was exciting because I, I like Dazzy Beats. I like Idris Elba. And I also love Lakeith Stanfield, who is phenomenal as Cherokee Bill in this movie. So mm-hmm. I overall, I just thought that, you know, it really did meet my expectations and I had fun with it. So how about you, Brandon? This is, I'll, I'll put this out there right now, it is totally a style over substance movie. Uh, it absolutely I see, is. <laughs> and and I've, actually, I've actually seen some people compare this as like the movie Quentin Tarantino wishes that he could make, which I think <laughs> is cut, which I think is a little bit of an apt comparison. Like it has that same kind of, you know, dialogue pacing and action pacing and, you know, visual stylization to it. I, again, I, I would not be shocked if James Samuel was at least a disciple of Tarantino, if not just admired his work. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I kind of really enjoy what he does with this. If nothing else, it's a blast. Like it, 
flies by its runtime. There's always something happening. And I was particularly impressed with it on a technical level. Like, um, oh, who's the costume designer? I have her up on the hill. Um, Antoinette Massam, who's the costume designer for this, and uh, Mihai Malamar uh, Jr., who is the cinematographer, they do such great work with Samuel in establishing this incredibly dense but incredibly vibrant tone to the whole thing. Like, every costume is different. Every shot feels like it was, you know, perfectly arranged kind of thing. Even in the action sequences that are weirdly bloody, there's a couple of them where it's like almost like a almost like a roller coaster cam where it's like kind of flashing back and forth between the bodies. It's incredibly visible. Yep. It's like if you're it's like if you're watching a jackass stunt almost, but like in the most classy way. Um the cast is stacked. Um Jonathan Majors kills this. Um like Regina King is amazing. But you're right. Like Keith Stanfield is the standout here. He does so much with Cherokee Bill. There's this stoicism to him. There's this kind of honor amongst thieves type theme that the movie's kind of going for that Idris Elba's character tries to get across and he does a lot with it. But I feel like in the end, it gets botched a little bit by the writing. But I feel like like Stanfield is the perfect embodiment of that kind of, you know, Clint Eastwood, Steve McQueen, old style Western archetype. And a lot of this does feel like, you know, I've heard the term revisionist Western passed around. This is revisionist. This is actually a lot of how the old West was. It's just a lot of these, you know, real life people were expounded from history for better or worse. But I love like Delroy Lindo as Bass Reeves kind of representing that angle of it of, you know, he wants to get involved and just can't like very much a la the watcher and what if, and then eventually he does. And we're all like, yes, he's involved. We love this. It's a total blast. It has depth to it. I love the journey that Nat and Rufus, Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba's character kind of go through in tandem with one another. And again, it's solidified by the ensemble cast, the style of it. I completely get if the screenplay is lacking to some people, because I do think that there are some things that I would have liked to go more in depth on. And the ending doesn't quite work for me, but it's a total blast. I would totally recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are times in, in this movie where it kind of falls to those cowboy tropes, you know, like where it's kind of like that low, like, well, now, welcome back in town in Redwood. And it's just like that yep. kind of low Clint Eastwood gruff. And it's like there there are some cowboy tropes in there that are kind of on the nose for my taste. But otherwise, yeah, like you were saying, it's a blast. And it, it's a, very much a movie with style over substance because like the the choreography for all these fight scenes is impeccable in my opinion and it really you can see that the creators really spent a lot of their time in that and in its aesthetic overall too oh totally and there's the soundtrack slaps uh james samuel does at least half the soundtrack uh there's a couple that other bob versions. marley remix song. the bob marley remix is great <laughs> um it, you know there's always a twist of like modern soundtracks for older style or older subset movies you know i'm looking at you great gatsby but at the same time, I think this one actually really works. I think it embodies the themes of the movie. And again, I think it enlightens the, I think it enlightens the comedic move moments. Like I won't spoil what it is, but let's just say there's a joke with, you know, white people. Wink, ah, wink. yes, I know you exactly know what, what you're about? talking about. Yep. <laughs> yes. Um, that is one of the coolest inside jokes I have seen from a movie in a long time. So I was just impressed by what it was able to do. It's a, it's a smart screenplay when it, when it sticks the landing, it sticks it. So. Oh, totally could go on to the star rating so for me I, I would say that this was probably a solid like seven and a half or eight for all those reasons that we mentioned had tons of fun would definitely watch it again um there were just a couple of moments in the screenplay where it was like okay for me but otherwise stylish love it this is a very easy eight out of ten for me uh it's so incredibly watchable again like that whole you know I think Tarantino-esque doesn't do it justice. I think James Samuel is a voice in cinema that I would like to see for a long time. I think he has a really great eye for detail with, an, again, an impeccably good cast. Like, everyone here is firing all cylinders. They're all inc incredibly dedicated to this. Like, he's Stanfield, again, single out for praise. He's tremendous in this. 
on a technical level, it knows exactly what it wants to be. On a narrative level, I found, again, holes, but more than enough substance to keep me invested and more than enough, you know, tropes to kind of get me, you know, oh, this is where this is going to come in. And like, I could get engaged with that because I'm a Western fan of that kind of thing. So again, if you are a Western nerd, this is, you're going to love this. If you're not, I would still recommend giving it a shot because again, it flies by. It's over two hours and I think it doesn't drag one second of it. Uh, it is streaming on Netflix right now. So if you have Netflix, please. All right, that is going to wrap up our new releases for this week. Again, Noel will be back next week to talk about a lot of things because, oh my God, our schedule is so packed next week. That being said, uh, we're going to hop into our TV segment for this week. We only have two shows for this week, thank goodness. Supergirl is done. The series finale aired uh, this past week, the two-part series finale, The Last Gauntlet and Kara is the name of the episodes. And Melanie and I, oh, I, you know what? I didn't even introduce you. Melanie Rogoff is here joining us for our, uh, for our take on Supergirl season six in the finale. And I want to turn it over to you first because I know that we've kind of talked off air about a lot of this. What was your expectations going into the finale and what did you think of it as a whole? Sure. First of all, thank you for inviting me. So I had a lot of like expectations and wishes for the finale. I was obviously hoping for Lex to be like defeated once and for all, which spoiler alert did happen. Although it was in an interesting way, but we'll touch on that later. I wanted Supercorp to be canon, which did not happen. And it was disappointing. And I was like, of course it didn't happen. Of course. Thank you, CW. Once again, you have disappointed me. But otherwise, I didn't really go into it with many expectations. It actually, in some ways, exceeded my expectations and in other ways failed them. So, yeah. What did you all think? Season six, and I, I'll go into like the Supergirl thing as a whole when we get to our series review, which we will be able, which we will be paying tribute to the entire series as a whole. But as far as season six goes, I've had, I think the stuff that it does really well, I really appreciate, but it is also a really huge mess. Some of the plot lines just delve into what I call fan fiction-y territory and just not in a really good way. And I just didn't feel attached to really any of it, I, except for when it's firing on cylinders and it's focused on, you know, Kara and the friends and, you know, these ideas of, you know, pulp and struggle and everything. And that, I think, really works beyond the CW writing, but I can get, I can get past a lot of that. And in that sense, I think the finale mostly works, specifically the second part of it. I think the first part does a lot of, you know, really cool setup and a lot of, you know, action sequences. But I think the finale... I remember thinking just, you know, the big battle ends and we cut to Kara's apartment. I looked at my timer and I'm like, oh, there's still 25 minutes left. Great. So we get to like do what this show does best. Jimmy and Wynn come back and there's all this great stuff about it. And then we get, I, I love the way that it properly ends with her and Kat in the interview. And I think that is so exemplary of what the show has been and the respect it has had for the journalist community, as well as the respect it's had for Kara as a character and dealing with so much nonsense up to this point. So I was impressed by how it ended. But it is, but it only exemplifies a lot of the problems I've had with the season overall. I figure we should, you know, pop into the thing that you and I are probably thinking the most. Uh, Supercorp. It's not canon, but it's a canon in our hearts. What are your thoughts? Okay. So I was like really disappointed because normally I don't do that kind of shit, but like Lena and Kara like are so good for each other and they have such intense chemistry. And what really bothered me, okay, was in the finale, like part two, at the freaking wedding. I think we're thinking the same um, thing. Yes. At the wedding. Okay. First of all, Lena, like looking really excited and saying to Kara, come on, come over here. The part when, and I'm sure Brandon, this is the one you're thinking of, 
when there's the emotional, um, you've changed me for the better. And then Kara goes and says, like, you're like the, of all the friends I've had. And I was thinking, do not, do not do this right now. Do not say the F word and the F word being friend. I don't know if you noticed, she looked at Lena's lips for like a split second. And I was thinking, oh my God, kiss and nothing happened. And like, I was just like, this would have been the perfect moment. Mine was the first moment because the way they frame Lena in that moment is like the sun's coming over her and like she's dead center shot. And I'm like, that's a romance shot. And then like there's, in my opinion, the not most official journalism sites, but there are sites that are claiming that there is a kiss recorded that got taken out. And I really don't necessarily believe it because they're like smaller sites and it's like, you know, that's too much hope to <laughs> to hold on to. If, um, if I may, uh, if I may quote Hawkeye from Avengers Endgame, don't give me hope. I hate Hawkeye, but that's another talk for another day, which Brandon knows we were robbed. We were robbed. We're talking about DC today. (laughs) Yes, DC. So yes, Supercorp. What what were your um, other thoughts regarding that? Again, like I wasn't a Supercorp fan originally. I I kind of thought it was just, you know, fans seeing what wasn't there. And then around season five, there really started to be a direct shift in the 100th episode changed my mind. And up to this point, I've just thought, why not? You have nothing to lose. Like, we don't know what the future of these characters is going to be. They're clearly doing the subtext in here beyond subtext. Just do it. So, again, I'm disappointed. I know why they didn't, but I vehemently disagree with it at this point, and I'm totally with the fans at this point. I do want to point out a couple other things uh, in the series, though. One, uh, even in his worst moments, I've really thought John Cryer has done a really kind of stellar job as Lex. and. So- and the relationship between him and Nixley is toxic and weird, and it's very CW, but it's also fat. It's one of those things, like, it's like a garbage fire where you're just like, you can't stop watching it because you know it's going to explode at some points. Um, but again, like, that goes to the totem stuff, and I'm like, I don't care about this. It feels incredibly hammy and ham-fisted. The other thing, though, Jimmy and Esme, the, the, the stuff with the camera made me cry because I remember that stuff from when he left in, you know, season five, and I was just like, ah, oh, th- no, that's like, that's passing on the torch, and that's why we love these characters, and I, I was so heartwarmed by it. That was a really nice moment. That... It was nice seeing Jimmy back in this kind of, not like fatherly, like uh, more like an uncle, like, but a, a uh, very much an uncle. uncle. Yeah, a heartwarming uncle figure, which I thought was very, very sweet. Yeah. But yeah, were there any other things about the finale that kind of took you by surprise or things where it's like, oh, I'm so glad they did that, or I can't believe that happened? The one other big thing I want to mention is because, again, like the overarching, you know, narrative and plot structure and things like that, I've had issues with. But I got to give respect to what they do with Kara's character in the end, because I love that conversation between her and Alex when they kind of turn the whole series on its head at the end of going, no, like we were a beacon for other people to help themselves and we can be partners in that vein. And I love that kind of, you know, turning of the themes on its head. So I respect that above most of the other writing in the season. Sam will bring you back on. I'm sorry you had to deal with all of our spoilery nonsense, but I want to actually get started with you for this. In your experience with Supergirl, what have been sort of the standout moments of the series so far, and what have you thought of it as a whole? Yeah, no worries. First of all, I just wanted to say that I I really enjoyed your conversation on that, just because um, for the viewer's context, I fell off of the Supergirl train just because I got busy watching other things and for some reason never got back into it. So um, I know Supergirl from season one to three. That's where I'm at. And um, no worries about the spoilers, because I already looked them up myself before this conversation. (laughs) So I am so mad that we got queer baited that that I also cannot stand. But Anyways, um, so in terms of like 
series, what it means to me as a whole. And oh, gosh, there are just so many good memorable moments um, over those first couple seasons and just for many things i mean i think the impact supergirl has had on fans has been immense especially with the lgbtq character arcs and um kyler lee was always one of my favorite actresses i mean i liked her in Grey's anatomy and to see her in this role as alex danvers was just phenomenal it was like you know life-changing for so many different people and i think it encouraged other people to feel brave about their own stories and so i i absolutely adored her always loved her um, I always laugh when I think back to season one when they were clearly trying to set her up with Peter Fascinelli and that just was not no chemistry whatsoever. Not good. Um, but um, one of the things I always loved about the show, though, was the relationship between Kara and Alex, because I thought their relationship was so integral to the show. Um those couch scenes were always super memorable for me. It would make me wish that I had like a sister growing up in, in that sense. So, because I'm an only child, but uh, yeah, I, I just really enjoyed this, this family aspect that Supergirl brought that I think is um, stronger more so in some ways than the other CWDC shows. I want to go over to Melanie Ruka, but I want to quickly bring up the family stuff because I think the the stuff with Helen Slater's Eliza, I think cannot be understated. I think she's such a great TV mom. And I think, First of all, having the original Supergirl there, I think, is always a great bit of fan service. But she's so good at, like, managing these two completely different daughters. And those scenes that we get between the three of them, I think, are so wholesome. But anyway, on to you, Melanie. What, what has stood out to you from the series as a whole, and what have you thought of it overall? I do like how many seasons and episodes actually had, first of all, incredibly relevant messages. And they were always, almost always relevant to what was going on at the time, like during a specific year, um, like the, I think it was season five where it was like everybody getting absorbed, like really into technology and just getting sucked into it. And I, I felt that that was so incredibly relevant. Um, there were also definitely some moments that were like triggering to probably like lots of other people, including myself from like different perspectives, but also things that like needed to be talked about. But ironically enough, one of my favorite things about the show was the music selection. So literally one of my best, like, in my opinion, one of the best moments of the series was when Supergirl is riding up to the White Martians blasting Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears. I remember watching that scene and being like, this is the most Legends of Tomorrow thing that Supergirl could possibly do. And I am so into this this is so amazing and it was just so well done and then like the fact that they played landslide by fleetwood mac at like the end of the finale i was like that almost made me cry because that song like always almost makes me cry never like fully just always the almost um let's see what else I really liked the introduction of Orlando's character. And I know that that kind of does go back into the later season, but I think he was just very inspiring. I really appreciated the whole notion of just because your background may be one way doesn't mean that you have to become that. Like you look at Lena Luthor and like, you know, obviously her brother is Lex, like one of the most heinous villains in the series. And she could have chosen to completely fall into the same path that he was on. And she did sort of fall into that, but then she fell out of it. But at the end, she chose to be a hero. And I think that that is so poetic and so beautiful. And it shows that no matter what circumstance you've been brought up in, no matter what has happened in your life, like you choose 
what your destiny is going to be. You choose the path that you are going to take. That is not for anyone else to take away from you. Um, and I found Lena Luther, honestly, she was just one of my favorite characters, probably because of that, because she was so insistent on being her own person. But at the same time, as a human being, like she still had the struggles of breaking free from that. But I just absolutely, absolutely loved John Cryer as Lex. And I kept thinking, oh my God, Alan from Two and a Half Men, this is absurd. Um, <laughs> like, I'd always seen him be so happy go lucky. And now he's a villain. And I was like, wow, great actor. But um, just when Lena was saying to Lex, like he was like saying how she hated him and he was trying to like prompt her to like do something bad. And she was like, I do hate you. I just love me more. And I was like, fist pump. Yes. Yes. That was like literally one of my favorite moments. But um, honestly, just the series as a whole, I hated the the season that Rain was in because honestly, it terrified me, like legitimately terrified me. Um, and there definitely were bumps along the road. It's definitely, in my opinion, like a maybe sen- seven out of 10 show. It's not perfect, but for what it's worth, it espouses a lot of really good values, has a lot of really good morals, um, really stands for the truth and doing what's really the right thing. And I think that that is also really important for people to be seeing and taking in because I don't think enough media outlets expose that. Not enough TV shows or the like have those kinds of messages. And I think that's what we need to see more. Sorry, I have a lot of thoughts. No, I get it. I brought you on for that reason. Um, I will simply get into my points as this. Supergirl is a flawed show. The first season is not good. I think even as the seasons go on, the writing has roller coasters of emotional value for me. It, it, the plots don't necessarily make a ton of sense. And their side characters are a dime a dozen. That being said, I think it, I think Supergirl is what more superhero shows and properties need to aspire to. I think because at the end of the day, whether you love how hokey it is, whether you hate how hokey it is, whether you love how, you know, optimistic and non-cynical and, you know, uh, again, like uplifting it can be. That's what it is. And it embraces all of it. Like, it's not, it doesn't have this weird, like, cynical undertone. It doesn't shy away from anything bad. Like, especially once we get to, you know, late season four, early season five into season six, when it does try and tackle, you know, a lot of really heavy topics head on. And again, it's not always subtle, but it works, at least for me. And between that, the characters, I think, are great. I think Melissa Benoist cannot be understated as what she's done for this character. She has elevated her to as much as an icon as Clark Kent ever could be. And, you know, that's no insult to, you know, Tyler Hagen over on Superman Lois. It's great. But I think what Melissa has done here is, you know, uplift that character so that, you know, little girls and generations of, you know, audiences can look to that as like a pinnacle of, you know, hope. And again, against all struggle and all odds as what a good superhero character I think should be beyond the fact that we get, you know, Lena and her complexity, beyond the fact that we get Alex and her coming out story, which I've heard so many people online have said has inspired them to come out in the same way, which I think is beautiful beyond, you know, the, the effects, which I do think have their merits. I think there's a lot of really good effects work in this. There's a really great uh, kind of world building to it. The problems I've always had with Supergirl are always, you know, bigger, whether it's, you know, the CW or the Arrowverse at large. But whenever it focuses on being itself, I've always admired it for better or worse. So again, I'm sad to see it go. I'm sad that not everything, you know, came to pass that I and a lot of other fans wanted. But, you know, I salute the show for what it did, and I'm gladly going to revisit it sometime soon. 
Yeah. And you know what? I, I would love for her to pop up on Superman and Lois. Like, I think it's about time. I would love to see her pop up on there. So, Oh, that would be so appropriate. Yeah, I'd love to see her pop up on that. <gasps> Supercorp could be canon on there. I would love oh, no, that. Don't, don't put that in the universe. You're going to give us all <laughs> false hope. <laughs> oh, no. If anything else, it would throw more shade towards, you know, Jess Queller and Rob Robner for being like, hey, you couldn't do it. You have to give it to another show to make a canon. <laughs> yeah. That is a thought. <laughs> if they're listening, if the writers are listening, please. It's- if somehow those into the dozens of Supergirl podcasts roasting them right now, we don't like you either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And that'll do it for our Supergirl uh, season six finale and series finale tribute. Again, the whole series is mostly up on Netflix. Uh, the last couple episodes are available on the CW app. So if you want to check it out, please do so. I think we've recommended at least more than a few parts of it. And uh, I gotta again, catch up. <laughs> yes, you absolutely should. And I think you can primarily catch up on most of it. Uh, for right now, we're going to move on to our second and final TV show for today, Netflix's Maya and the Three. Uh, this is the newest series from Jorge Gutierrez, who, if you are not familiar with the name, he is responsible for the criminally underappreciated El Tigre series on Nickelodeon and the even more criminally underappreciated Book of Life movie from uh, 2014. Uh, he reunites with a lot of cast from that movie, specifically uh, Zoe Saldana and uh, Diego Luna. Zoe Saldana here plays Maya, who is a warrior princess of the Teca people. Uh, needless to say, this is sort of in a uh, somewhat prehistoric uh, Mesoamerican kind of melting pot world where, you know, the gods are real. There's, you know, sacrifices, that, there's mythologies and prophecies. I won't give too much away, but basically what it is, is that there is thought to be a prophecy about Maya and her brothers. It is deemed false. They find a new prophecy in the wake of this big battle with the gods. And Maya is sent by her parents, who are voiced by Jorge Gutierrez himself and... Um, uh, and Senja and Quija, and she basically has to go off and find these, you know, warriors, three, the three of Maya and the three in the world. One of them is a uh, friend of, like, the animal jungle kingdom uh, voiced by Stephanie Beatrice. One is a kind of, you know, meat-headed but good-hearted uh, gladiator type voiced by uh, Gabriel Iglesias, and one is an aspiring sorcerer named Rico uh, voiced by Alan Maldonado. Together, they must team up to kind of, you know, uh, to fight off the evil gods threatening all their kingdoms, as well as discover, you know, Maya's heritage within herself, which may or may not be more secretive than we think it is. Uh, I watched the whole series. Sam, you uh, got about halfway through, I think I'm correct? Yeah, I did. The episode that I left off of was um, the Barbarians that you were mentioning. So, um... Right. So then uh, on to you first. How familiar with you with uh, Gutierrez's work and um, does this live up to the hype? Yeah. So with Gutierrez's work, I actually adored Book of Life. Like you said, criminally underrated. And I was telling Brandon a bit off camera that I have a good memory of seeing that that movie with some friends because we did a a really weird double feature of first seeing, uh, I think it was Book of Life and then The Judge. I don't remember which order it was, but those two are very weird combinations. And I joke saying like, I hope it was Book of Life second. Yeah, because that was like a very happy movie. So I'm trying to remember which order it was. Either way, a good time. But um, I do really like Book of Life. So I was very excited about Maya and the Three. I remember when the trailer first dropped and I'm like, oh, excited to see this. For me, it kind of didn't live up to my expectations. And I think it's because I couldn't follow it with the story. I mean, the the story was really interesting. The premise is really great. And I think that there's a lot of theology and lore behind it. And there is a lot of love into the like Mesoamerican influence here. For me, it was like, I kind of found it cheesy and kind of weak and kind of melodramatic. There were times when it just felt so obviously like, hey, not bad, Rico. Yeah, not so bad yourself, Maya. Hey, guapo. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like everything has to have a label. 
And even in this podcast, I, I don't think I often say your name much. And I don't think you to me either, unless we're like, take it away, Brandon. Not but really. otherwise, like, yeah, in ca- casual conversation, you don't always say names. And so it just didn't feel natural to me. It felt kind of robotic. So that's, I think that was my biggest gripe with it. But having said that, the the story, it's just really, again, interesting. And it was super surprisingly dark at moments i didn't expect as much death as there was so um th- for what that's worth <laughs> that that was just interesting and um the, the the voice acting though was a lot of fun i still like zoe saldana in there and then i honestly really like uh diego luna's ads too um but it, that's also a whole other story and gripe that i have about Zats and maya and how it felt like they were trying to force them together and i i did not like that it made me feel gross but i would love to hear what you what you thought brandon because you saw the uh, the entire series spoiler they don't stop with the maya Zats dynamic oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh no but yeah i this was one of those projects that kind of had like a free pass to me. Like I knew Jorge Gutierrez was working on something after Book of Life. And, you know, I was hoping it was a Book of Life sequel. He's apparently still doing that. So fingers crossed that it eventually comes out. But this was like, I will watch anything that he does. Like, I think El Tigre is criminally underappreciated. The fact that we only got the one season is tragic to me. Jorge had such a great voice in this. And he does in this too. Like he voices the king and he clearly is having a lot of fun with this. Zoe Saldana is fantastic. Like she's really darn good. And what I love about this is that she feels right off the back such like a natural leader. I love how the show examines kind of the ambitions that certain leader types will have of like, oh, if I'm confident enough and I know what I'm doing with this, then I will, you know, succeed in this. And that's very clearly not Maya. Like she fails a lot. And, you know, it just goes throughout the series of being like, yes, you know, you can think you're doing good as much as you want, but if you don't have, you know, a team and people who care about you beside you and the resources to do it, like you're not going to succeed with it. And I like Maya's journey throughout that, along with the behind the scenes stuff with her character that, I didn't love it first, but I think as we get into the last two, potentially three episodes, I found myself getting really emotional with it. Like, I like where it goes. Uh, and again, not to spoil it for Sam just or any of you, just in case, but I think it works. The rest of the voice cast is solid as usual. Uh, Kate Castillo pops up in there. Alfred Molina is just so good at playing villains between this and Doc Ock and How to Turn Your Dragon. He's just so great at playing a lot of these. He kills it here. And again, I agree with Sam. Like, I love the notion that the show embraces its, you know, Mesoamerican, you know, uh, Latin America type roots of it and kind of meshes it all together in this great kind of melting pot of, you know, mythology and story and everything. And I think when you take the story as mythology, a lot of the other things I can look past, like I'm with you, the dialogue is not great, but I can, I can go towards some of the big strokes of it of just being like, oh, these characters did this thing and it moves on to this thing. And I don't have to necessarily worry about like the dialogue nuances of it all, because it is very much played up as like, Maya is a new chapter in this culture's mythology, and the gods that she surrounded herself with are part of that story. So when I could look past those things, it works, but you're right. It's very clearly a kid's... But at the same time, like, I acknowledge what you said earlier about, like, it embraces the idea of, you know, death as not, you know, the end, but of the next life. A lot of these, you know, ancient myths would kind of get across and things like that, and I love how it ties that all together. Yeah, overall, like, you know, I, I was, I'm really glad to hear your feedback on that, too, because I, I, you know... With only finishing half of it, you wonder like, oh, how much of it gets better? And I still intend on watching some more of it um, in the background. Did you feel that some of the background characters were kind of under animated? Yes. There were a lot of background characters that just looked like orbs kind of bouncing. Like, yes, they had facial features, but like the most minimal facial features possible. I think the art style in this is fantastic, and I love what Gutierrez and his team do with it. Animation-wise, I think you can tell that either some of it was rushed or maybe it's too ambitious for its own good. Yeah, yeah, because that was something that I noticed, too, where I was like, mm, 
is that a child or is that an orb? <laughs> so, is that a uh, is that a me figure? Yeah, <laughs> with the little ball hands. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I did just want to add one last thing that I know that we usually talk about. You know, uh, we just talked about movies and go like, oh, I wish this was stretched out. I wanted more. Like you could have expanded this to a series. For me, this was actually the opposite. I feel like you could have done this in an hour and a half, two hour long movie, and you would have gotten everything across that you needed to. Like you could go to the different kingdoms. You could have all the gods behind the scenes. You could have Maya's prophecy and tighten it all up. And I feel like, especially in the middle, it really drags. Like, there's stuff that doesn't need to be there that you could have just had the beginning and end as, you know, six or seven episodes, and it would have been great. That's just me. Like, I know that, you know, it is what it is. But I just found that very interesting of me being like, oh, I wanted less of this. I totally see that from the the first five episodes that I watched. Yeah, you could have totally fit those first five episodes in, like, 20 minutes maybe totally. 30 yeah yeah that's a really good point i wonder what that stylistic choice was for a series versus a movie because it could totally have been like a, a good movie i guess we'll move on to our rating then for me i'd probably give it like a, a six for how much i kind of trashed it but i really appreciate the voice acting because the actors worked with what they had and again art style is really fun when it when it stuck the landing so um yeah probably a six for me how about you brandon uh, solid seven. This is really enjoyable. I would definitely recommend it to families. Like, I think older audiences might get a little tired of it, especially if you're not a fan of Gutierrez's art style, which again, I am, but I get it. It's not for everyone. It's, but again, the voice cast is terrific. I love the mythology it develops. I love how it embraces the mythological aspects of it more and more as the series goes on. And I do think it ends really strong. Like, again, shout out to uh, Tim Davies and uh, Gustavo Satoya, who did the music for The Last of Us. Uh, they do the music on here, and it's terrific, especially in the last couple of episodes I noticed. So, again, check it out if you're curious. I think it is worth a shot. I think it's worth to support this kind of animation and this kind of style that isn't, you know, so homogenized. But I'm just telling you, like, it's not amazing. All right, that'll do it for our TV segment. So now we are moving on to our directorial debut for this week. So this week we wanted to kick it off with the, you know, our 13th episode. And so we chose a big one this week. So we watched Citizen Kane, which was Orson Welles' first movie that he directed. So uh, Brandon, take it away with the synopsis. Yeah, we figured for our 10th directorial debut, we might as well take a big one. And what's bigger than what might be the biggest directorial debut of all time? Uh, we could literally do a whole show about the behind the scenes. We're not going to do that because it would probably be boring for us. Uh, Citizen Kane. This is, of course, uh, Orson Welles' first project from 1941. Uh, prior to this, Orson Welles had been probably best known for his War of the Worlds infamous broadcast. Uh, you'll say, went all over the country. Everyone panicked, except for movie studios, who went, hey, you're super talented. We would like to sign you to things. Orson Welles was like, no, I'm too good for you. And they were like, we'll give you complete freedom, like absolute freedom and vital cut privilege. And Orson Welles went, okay, sure. That Orson Welles impression was top 10. It was in a tier. Thank <laughs> <But> you. Top. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I love how my Orson Welles impression is just slightly deeper me. Um, this film uh, is written by himself and Herman J. Mankiewicz. Uh, if you saw Mink, directed by David Fincher last year, that essentially tells that story. Again, we could dive into that whole thing, too. But needless to say, Citizen Kane follows actually not uh, Orson Welles' character of, um, of Charles Foster Kane, who is a newspaper magnate in this movie, loosely loosely quote-unquote based on William Randolph Hearst. He's William Randolph Hearst. It actually follows uh, William Allen's character, uh, Jerry Thompson, who is a reporter for the News on the March newsreel system, who is essentially researching the death of Charles Foster Kane, played by Orson Welles in this movie. Uh, again, Orson Welles directed, wrote, produced, and starred in this movie as Charles Foster Kane. He has died of old age, and his last words are Rosebud, and the entire country is going, well, what the heck is Rosebud? And Jerry Thompson is basically going, I'm going to find out. And so the whole movie is in a, at the time, revolutionary style told in a series of flashbacks. 
We follow Jerry as he interviews a lot of people from Charles's past. He follows his he follows uh, his ex-wife Susan, played by uh, Dorothy Comingore. Uh, he follows uh, Jim Geddes, who was the rival governor at the time. He follows a bunch of other people, uh, Mr. Bernstein, who was his manager at the time, played by Everett Sloan. And that's essentially how the movie is told. Like we are shown all these flashbacks and we have to then gather what Charles Foster Kane's life was like and then what eventually might have led to his death and what regret he might have had to his death with the infamous Rosebud line. Uh, Sam, I want to go over to you first. I I never seen Citizen Kane. It is probably one of my biggest movie sins up to this point. Have you seen it at this point? And does this live up to the you know decades of hype around it as one of the greatest films of all time? I've never seen it either, so we're both frauds. <laughs> we're frauds! <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so I'd never seen it before, which I know is terrible as someone who calls himself a critic, and I haven't seen one of the most critically acclaimed biggest directorial debuts ever, and arguably, like, the best movie ever made. So, you know, after saying all that, <laughs> when I watched this, I was really excited to to learn that we were going to do this movie. So, I I really liked it aesthetically. I feel like it was a movie that was so beyond its time in production design and and value in that. Like it, it's amazing because it was actually on a pretty low budget. If I'm not mistaken, they made this movie with a super super low budget. And and so something that really surprised me about this movie was the budget because when you look at that production value, it for me doesn't feel like it was only about 839,000. Like that's, that's insane. And so because of that, I thought production wise, it was really beyond its time. And it was just really exciting to know that a lot of these actors, this was the first time that they've been in a movie as well. So it wasn't just a first for the director, but the first for a lot of the actors in here too. So um, I think that this is a movie that I, admire more than I adore because I absolutely recognize all of its great points and its contribution to film. But for me, I I thought the story was like, I don't know. I thought it was okay. And maybe because I, this is a mortal sin for saying this, but maybe because I thought it was too old and I saw it too late in my life, I have no idea what it is, but I just kind of had a hard time kind of connecting to some of these characters, but I, you know, again, enjoyed it for what it was and recognized the classic that it is. I'm mostly with you. Uh, I do think this is great. Like, I actually think this is a great movie. Is it the greatest movie of all time? I don't know quite about that. I think I'd have to sit with it a bit longer because, again, I just saw this as a recording maybe a couple days ago. I don't quite think it's overrated. I do think it is a bit above itself. Like, the people who would call this an Orson Welles vanity project are not wrong uh, beyond the fact that he has, you know, a ton of say in the production and making of this and he is for all purposes, the de facto star. And like you mentioned, he was one of the few people who had acting experience prior to this. And I think it kind of shows on screen, like Charles Foster Kane is a fascinating character, but I think he is one of the only fascinating characters in this. I think everyone else is very much played as, you know, a bit too one-dimensional, a bit too, you know, kind of obstacles in the way of Charles's journey or in the way of Jerry's looking for the truth. And I wish we had gotten more to delve into those kind like I wish we got more to Susan or more into uh into his first wife or more into Mr. Bernstein or things like that. And I think Susan, could- yes. I emphatically yes. agree with that. <laughs> yes, who is of course based on, you know, the relationship between William Randolph Hearst and Marion Wavenwood. Again, go watch Mank. There's more explained there. We don't have time to delve into it all. But I will say from a technical level, it deserves all the acclaim it gets. Like great tone cinematography, 
at the time was groundbreaking. And at the time, no movie was being done like that. And simply from a screenplay point of view, you know, whatever you want to say about how much credit Megawis has on this, what he and Wells do with this is revolutionary for its time. Like no movie was told entirely through flashbacks, which is basically is. And I love that structure of it. Like, you know, we're both journalism people and, you know, we go into that world a little bit. And I love how, you know, it kind of embraces that idea of, you know, at the time, you think it's a good idea what Charles Foster Kane is doing. And as you go further down the line, you're like, no, he is just embracing power for the sake of power and doesn't recognize the institution for what it is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it, this was one of those movies that's like all the president's men where it's hailed as one of the best journalism movies as well. And so I, I think that because of that hype over the years, I, maybe my expectations were too high or something. And that's my own fault right there. But um, yeah, like this is also absolutely a love letter to journalism in a way, uh, both for the good and for bad, because like you said, he was just power hungry. So it's, you know, like, it's just, it was really fun to kind of see that character arc. Um, but yeah, overall, like I mentioned, it was um, just like a, one of those kinds of movies that you definitely admire um, for, for what it is and for the classic that it was. Totally. And I, I will say for as much as I call it, you know, slightly a vanity project, and I say by that, I appreciate how Wells goes just completely all out with it. Not just with, you know, the set designs and with, you know, the, the exorbitant monies and the parties and, you know, the, the musical numbers, which are, you know, really cool. But like all of it, I think, transcribes to, again, how fascinating Charles is as a character. Because at the end of the day, Charles is a character who comes from nothing, sees power as a grab to, you know, success and morality, quote unquote. And once he gets there, he completely loses himself there to the point where we get to the ending and nothing has been learned by his character. Like, spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, but nothing is learned by Charles in the end. Like, he has, you know, a calming device, essentially, and, you know, whatever Rosebud is revealed to be. But by the time we get there, nothing has changed with him. He is still the same, you know, arrogant, power-mad person that grew into that system. I love the way that it frames his story as, you know, all-American, you know, the, the boss that everyone likes. And then by the end of it, you very clearly recognize, like, no, this character is flawed and we have had to follow him for the last two hours. I will also end with uh, Bernard Herrmann's score, which is, was, this was his first major score, of course, going on to, you know, work with Alfred Hitchcock a lot and then work on Taxi Driver. This is one of his best scores. I love it so much. Like, it, again, it's, it's grand and jollopy. And, you know, it's not even including the musical numbers. But again, it's one of the things that I respect. And it's also one of the aspects of the movie that I truly love about it. No, that's a good point. Yeah, the music was really good. It was it's especially in a time when music was so influential in movies, not to say that it isn't now, but it's just a different kind of importance. And it really brought this atmosphere of like mystery to the film. So yeah, the, definitely shout out to like the music. That was great. And it does. And I, I will say the mystery just by the end is good. Like it's satisfying. Like for me, I didn't quite know what the twist was going to be. And when you get to it, it's like, Oh, that actually makes a ton of sense. And is a little bit tragic to the character. But at the same time, it's, I, again, because none of the other characters I found as interesting, I could only take it so far. Yeah, we are exactly on the same page with that. <laughs> so yeah, uh, ratings then? Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, so for me, I would say like, probably like a six. Like how do you rate this movie? <laughs> I know, because I, I, it's terrible. I know, I just gave one of the greatest movies of all time a personal six, but Maybe I just need to watch it a second time because I feel bad. I feel like I'm going to let down a, like a ton of people just with that six. But that, that's kind of where I'm at with this right now. Solid eight for me. I think this is a great movie. I think Orson Welles and Herman J. Mankiewicz and that whole team put together exactly what they wanted to. And I think there's some semblance of respect in there, especially for that time 
when the studio system was so, you know, encroached on itself and so contract driven to be able to make just something like this that was so, again, very much an attack on an American institution, an American public figure that wound up being something completely different. From a technical level, it's revolutionary. I think it completely stands the mark. Orson Welles, as a director, as a writer, and as an actor, I think is, in, is working his butt off on this. It totally shows. And again, the ending has its holes in it that I wish I was more gravitated to beyond the fact that, again, it's Citizen Kane. Like, it's critic proof at this point. We can say whatever we want, and it'll still be considered one of the greatest movies of all time. But oh, absolutely. I think it's great. I think the notion of going to visit it, you know, because it's Citizen Kane is foolhardy, but I think go visit it because it's a really good movie. And I think there's a lot of stuff to be said about it. So we've already hammered it that it's, it was so ahead of its time in so many different aspects. So yeah, it's definitely worth the watch either way. Well said, well said. For history's sake. For history. (laughs) And that will do it for episode 13 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to our madness today again. Listen, while we've got you here, Click that follow button on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whichever one you're listening at. If you're listening on either one, we are on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify at Plot Devices. Search it there. Go follow us there. You'll get notifications on all of our new episodes. They're coming out uh, Sunday, later day, Monday morning, depending on when I get to editing them. I'm only human and I apologize. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. Go check it out there. We have weird stuff there as well. I want to thank my panelists for today. First of all, our guest, Melanie Rogoff. Uh, Melanie, where can the people find you online and uh, what do you got going on in your life? First of all, thank you so much for having me. You can find me on Instagram at DJMellyMel12. Um, I have my own online show called Euro America Radio. So you can find me there at facebook.com slash Euro America Radio, mixcloud.com slash Euro America Radio. It's also on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, and Podchaser. And I just released an EP under the name Shantoose, which is out now everywhere. And I have a song coming up that is my first ever collaboration, which will come out on December 14th. So if you follow me on the gram, at DJ Mel 12 you will be the first to stay updated on all of that. Go listen to that EP. It's very good. Also joining us is Samantha hey. Ancorvaya. Uh, Sam, where can the people join you online? And uh, what do you got going on in your life? Yes, goodness. I've got several things going on, which is crazy. But we are still here. And like you said, we are only human. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at S underscore Inquiria, or you could follow me on Instagram at Sam I am 520. And so goodness, because things are ramping up for the film critics right now with like uh, the award season. I've been going to the movies almost every single night, at least for this week so far. Uh, so I am fatigued a bit, but I am excited because then there are a lot of really cool movies to talk about. So some of the things I've already seen are The Power of the Dog in Canada. Canto, Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, goodness. And then I'm also seeing uh, Being the Ricardos soon. It's just a ton of things, as you can hear. So there are plenty of different things. Feel free to follow me and all my shenanigans. Um, and yeah, looking forward to seeing everyone there. And you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow me as well on ASU Odyssey. I've got reviews for Belfast coming out this week, which I again didn't get out. Also, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I'm seeing this week, and hopefully I can get out uh, fairly early. I'm very excited for that. Uh, go follow my band at Killbox underscore Music. Check me out on the latest episode of No Capes Required. That's at Zero Capes Required on Instagram and Twitter as well. And that'll do it for us. Again, No Guzman will be joining us next week uh, once again. For myself, for Melanie Rogoff, for Samantha Corvaya, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. 